You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening and um, welcome to tonight's special Sydney Environment Institute uh, panel discussion on the failure of corporate social responsibility in a warming world. Uh, my name's Christopher Wright. I'm a professor of organisation studies at the business school here at the University of Sydney. Uh, and before we begin proceedings, uh, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners uh, of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So, uh, as I said, it's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight for this uh, panel discussion. And we have um, three very qualified uh, uh, speakers for our panel to discuss this topic tonight. I think it's fairly timely, in a sense, to, to sort of focus on the role of business, corporate social responsibility, uh, organisational sustainability uh, within that, uh, that pretext of the warming world. Because as you've probably seen on the news, uh, and in the media, climate change has finally, it seems, uh, appeared on the, the main media stage with the example of the protests of Extinction Rebellion, the school climate strikes, uh, the example of Greta Thunberg. Uh, it now seems that climate change and the concept of a climate emergency uh, is in the mainstream zeitgeist. So the question becomes then, well, what role for business in this? What role has business played over time? Uh, is there still relevance for this concept of corporate social responsibility? And what does that even mean in a context of uh, a climate emergency, a climate crisis, climate disruption, uh, those sorts of concepts? So uh, in terms of that context, I'm going to uh, provide a very brief intro to our three speakers. And I'm not going to read their bios. I'm just going to sort of ask them questions and get them to introduce themselves. I think it's probably the best way to go. Um, so perhaps starting at the far end there um, uh, with uh, Kate McKenzie. Um, Kate, you have a background as a journalist. Uh, you're a director of an environmental NGO uh, focused on climate. Uh, and I guess your perspective on corporate engagement, the climate crisis and CSR more generally, could you perhaps give us a bit of an intro on how you see the field and also a bit about yourself and your career? Hi. Um, thanks, Chris. Yeah. So, yeah, as Chris mentioned, I'm, um, I was a journalist for uh, about 15 years, um, including 10 years at the Financial Times in London um, and then back here in Sydney, um, where I wrote uh, about finance um, and for a while about energy, which is how I got interested in climate change. Um, and uh, I left about five years ago, actually a bit over five years ago now, um, to work at the Climate Institute, um, which... Um, sadly doesn't exist anymore. It was a really, uh, really good think tank um, in Australia um, as their sort of finance program lead. So working with, uh, mostly with the investor community, I guess, rather than um, uh, other sort of real economy uh, businesses, so super funds and asset managers, or, or that was sort of the original intent or scope of the job. Um, I actually ended up doing a lot more work um, bec because a lot of people were already focused on the superannuation sector and the pension fund sector globally in terms of climate change. Um, I ended up focusing a bit more on the insurance sector and um, the banking sector um, and also the financial regulators, um, which was uh, you know, probably the most 
um, rewarding part of it um, and, and also doing a lot of sort of engagement and collaboration with and, and on behalf of um, the scientific research community um, in Australia, um, which, which is also really fun. And I um, am on the Stakeholder Advisory Committee for something called the Nest Climate Hub, which is a partnership of CSIRO, the Bureau of Meteorology and um, the five sort of main climate modelling universities. Um, and that's really, that's been yeah, a really interesting way of um, getting exposure to the science, but also liaising or yeah just just sort of engaging I guess with the scientific community and the business community and the financial regulators um, and helping sort of translate those um, conversations and find where the work they're doing sort of intersects. Um, uh, so the last sort of couple of years um, since the Climate Institute closed I've um, done a couple of different things. I was a, I, I was a director at Climate Kick Australia um, which is a fairly new NGO um, focused on innovation. Um, so the, the KIC is KIC, it stands for Knowledge Innovation Community um, and it's based on a European organisation of the same name um, which um, has a lot of sort of central EU funding um, and has a mission to do um, sort of cross-sectoral um, partnership projects. Um, they also do a lot of the usual kind of start-up-y um, incubator, accelerator pitching type um, programs, but they do, they, they convene um, and support a lot of really sort of complex collaborative projects with um, between stakeholders from the business sector and government sector and research sector and, and, and the NGO or civil society sector. Um, so the Australian one, um, the Australian Climate Kick was set up with a similar, um, I guess with a similar kind of purpose and agenda, but quite a different structure where, where it had um, core partners that came from, that were a mix of state governments, um, universities, uh, corporates and, and a couple of um, civil society organisations. So. Um, it had that nice sort of cross-sectoral thing, um, that sort of structure and that idea of um, collaborating between different sorts of stakeholders um, with a sort of focus on innovation um, and the part of that sort of theory of change is based around the fact that we we have to, the rate of decarbonisation we have to achieve is so rapid um, that, you know, there's, there's definitely a need for innovation, innovation will play a role there. Um, so that was a again, you know, really nice place to get lots of exposure um, and have a lot of interaction and try and solve some really really hard problems um, <laughs> with sort of these different sectors. So um, corporate again, you know, banks and uh, banks and insurers, um, universities, researchers, um, and uh, and state governments, um, and to an extent, sort of local and not so much Commonwealth, um, but a little bit. Um, so these days I mostly work for the European Climate Foundation or I, or I consult on their behalf. Um, I'm doing more international focus work, so I consult on um, sort of strategic advice, um, uh, and communication advice and, and various sort of other things related to the intersection of climate and finance. So again, I'm very much in the sort of climate finance space. Um, that's, yeah, that's what I've mostly been working on for the last year or so. Um, I also... Um, uh, oh, I'm also a fellow at the Centre for Policy Development. They really um, kindly um, took me on as a fellow after the Climate Institute closed so I could continue some of the work I'd been doing with the financial regulators around climate risk, so APRA and the Reserve Bank, um, uh, and um, had a nice sort of synergy, I guess, with 
some of the work that they've been doing in that direction as well. So I write occasionally write papers with them. Um, uh, and at the moment I'm in the middle of a really complicated project with a bunch of um, IPCC authors to come up with um, something that is kind of a guide to climate change broadly, but particularly to the science and the sort of related disciplinary research for the financial sector. So that is my <laughs> sorry, slightly long bio. Um, but uh, I guess over that for five years, I've had five years or so, um, and, and you know, prior to that, obviously, as a business journalist, I had a lot of interaction with the you know, big corporates, um, but from a very specific kind of um, perspective, um, I was just saying to um, a journalist from Reuters yesterday, um, it's kind of, it's, it's really funny when you leave journalism, suddenly everyone just tells you everything, <laughs> and it's, it's kind of nice, all, the, all those things that, you know, you'd have had to go to great lengths to kind of wheedle out of people as, as a journalist, people just kind of blurt out, you know, all this great stuff, it's really fascinating, but you can't, you know, necessarily share it or you have to be a lot more careful about how you share it um so that's the sort of downside um but it is it is it has been really um very illuminating i guess to kind of see how institutions work and how um how sort of change uh happens or doesn't happen um within institutions but also sort of across um across society as a whole um and to work um, at, at, at times, you know, work quite closely with people who are um, either within big companies in the sort of um, corporate responsibility or CSR type um, uh, function um, uh, or, or uh, consultants that are working with those companies um, like, like yourself. <laughs> um, uh, so that are also sort of closely involved but sort of giving that more – in that more advisory role. Um, so, yeah, so I've had the that really interesting exposure, I guess, to um, what uh, – how the people in these corporate responsibility type roles uh, see their jobs and how they try and affect change or, or, or don't um, and, and what the – you know, I think I have a bit of a feel for the kind of work that they do and the kind of challenges they face um, and how effective they are. Um, that said, it's not a job I've ever done myself, <laughs> so I, um, I, I definitely do not have that um, <laughs> real kind of lived experience of working of working in that. But um, but yeah, you know, I've, I've provided a lot of kind of I guess advice and um, and input and you know just been a bit of a sort of brains trust and a critical friend, as we like to say at the Climate Institute, to um, to some of the some of the um, uh, quite a few of the big companies in Australia, particularly in the financial sector, um, for me. Um, so I have, yeah, pretty, I, I think it's a little bit hard for me to sum up my view on this. Um, I really liked the title of the panel. I thought it was really nicely clear and, um, uh, yeah, I, I guess, you know, one thing I would say in defense of CSR is, um, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily think it's fair to blame any one particular, um, sector or group for the for the lack of action on climate change um certainly there's a lot of people who are very happy to blame scientists um and the civil society sector and you know every, you know the media like there there are a lot of places where you could say you know we've failed um it's such a it's such a pervasive and um you know complex problem um which is no absolutely no excuse for why we've moved so slowly on it um 
and I, I just you know I, I guess I'm kind of I wouldn't I wouldn't kind of frame it as being completely a failure of the CSR um, of that CSR sort of function in the corporate sector, um, but I do I guess I have some sort of misgivings or, or, or sort of doubts about how effective that function is actually able to be um, in terms of affecting the kind of change that we need to address climate change. Um, it is, um, you know, it, it's really impossible to kind of overstate the, what, what we, what, you know, the, the scale of the task ahead of us all. Um, and a lot of it, I, you know, I, th I think, you know, one sort of particular criticism I have of the way that CSR has handled climate change um, is that it's tended, you know, I, I don't think it belongs in CSR for a start. Um, it's a, it's too big, it's too, it's too essential and too systemic to sit in um, the function of a company that is, you know, partly there to just deflect criticism and manage stakeholders. Um, I think, you know, CSR can also form the, you know, also have the effect of being a sort of, um, like, internal change agent as well. And, and I've seen some people who are very good at that and I really respect them because I think it is very difficult to do that um, in a big company when, you know, particularly where in some cases you're, you're quite explicitly set up to not do that, um, to just, you know, I think in the majority of cases you're really set up to just... Uh, not really affect change um, and, and actually, you know, try and make things just carry on the way they are and not upset anyone too much um, in um, senior management or on your board um, or in the media um, or your customer base. Uh, so, yeah, I, th I think it's not... I, th I think, you know, partly it's something that is maybe just really kind of beyond the realm or beyond the scope or, or, or sort of... Um, agency of CSR and I think it's probably a bit unfortunate that a lot of companies came to climate change through that lens um, when it is such a you know again like I, I, you know I keep using words like systemic which I feel is a very bland word but it's it, it's it's also like probably the most accurate word is that um, we do have to change everything and very quickly um, and you know I think you know, I, and hopefully Rachel will correct me on some of this, but, you know, I think some companies, maybe, you know, the CSR people are empowered to do that, but a, a, in a lot I don't really think that they are. Um, and I do kind of feel that the CSR people can also kind of sometimes inadvertently and with the best intentions, always, you know, really, really well-intentioned people but can actually end up kind of uh, just kind of enabling a continuation of... Um, of business as usual, which is what we really don't need at the moment. Um, which is probably a good place, actually, because <laughs> we're going to come back to business as usual in a big way. So um, that's great. Thanks, Kate. So, um, Rachel, you're um, tidally a social development specialist, but you work for a, a big four company, um, and there's obviously sort of tensions around, you know, um, delivering value to shareholders plus looking after social environmental issues. So. Maybe provide a brief intro to yourself and how you see this title, perhaps. That's a big place to start. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. Um, so as a bit of a background to myself, um, I started my career at the World Bank, um, part of the United Nations um, 
funnily enough, I'd actually just wrapped up a subject titled The World Bank here at Sydney University when I got offered that role. So I'd gone in with a very critical role, uh, a very critical uh, understanding of the bank. Um, and I spent two years there um, looking after environmental safeguards um, throughout the region. So I worked mainly in Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Fiji and Solomon Islands looking at um, the environmental safeguards of the bank's investments in the region. And this was at a time when the environmental safeguards of the bank were very contentious, um, largely because they weren't really safeguarding the environment um, to the extent that that uh, critics expected them to. Um, and in that role, I also worked on a number of climate resilience and disaster response projects. So I worked in Fiji in um, the aftermath of the cyclone there um, and also worked on a few um, climate resilience projects in partnership with the University of the South Pacific. Um, so that was a really interesting role in that we were working at the cross-section of government and the private sector. Um, so the World Bank's entire portfolio in this region is funded by the Australian government, so they were our only donor, um, so we were accountable to them. Um, but then I also worked in the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank, which is entirely private sector funded. Um, so I really got a sense of... Um, who the real victims of climate change are at this point in time. Working throughout Pacific Islands, it was very clear to me that it wasn't a problem of the future. Um, it was something very real happening um, to our neighbours in the Pacific. Um, from there, yes, I ended up um, at EY. So I work in the climate change and sustainability services team at EY. Um, and the, the function of this team is, is largely to do assurance um, and advisory to businesses um, on how they manage um, and report on their environmental impacts. Um, admittedly, that assurance uh, component is not really what I do. Um, so most of my clients at EY are um, businesses with charitable foundations um, as well as charities themselves. So I really work at the intersection of how can businesses um, really achieve a social purpose and um, how can we make that meaningful and how can we go beyond CSR and beyond compliance. Um, and then conversely, I also work with charitable organisations, uh, including some focused on the environment, on what they need from business. Um, so I guess uh, my um, presence on this panel is is largely driven by that that work at the intersection of business and charities um, and understanding um, yeah what do we really mean when we say CSR these days and I guess all of that is underpinned. Um, I run a podcast called Goodwill Hunters. Um, <laughs> Um, which is now the leading podcast on social impact in Australia. Um, so we've got a fantastic community of um, over 10,000 listeners now and every week we do an interview either with a charity CEO or a business leader and we tackle these topics and I've found increasingly um, climate and, and the environment has come up as a topic. So we've had ministers on the show, business leaders, charity CEOs and really tackling the sorts of questions that we're hoping to tackle tonight, including shareholder value um, and uh, you know, being responsible uh, and accountable to both shareholders and stakeholders and what the difference between those two things is. Um, so I know we'll get into that more, so I might stop there. Yeah, no, thank you very much for that. And we will get to that vexed issue very, very soon, actually. But Tanya, 
You work in the business school with me. Yes. You teach this stuff like I do. What's your take on corporate social responsibility and also a little bit of a bio? Okay. All right. Um, well, uh, firstly, thank you uh, for inviting me to speak tonight and, um, and thank you to Kate and Rachel. Um, I contrast a little bit with um, these lovely ladies in the sense that um, I have actually worked on behalf of some of these companies. And uh, the other is that um, my, my bio isn't perhaps quite as illustrious. I've, I've had a period where I've worked as an outdoor education instructor and um, done, done qualifications in mountain climbing. And um, I also had a time where I was um, uh, working as a classical pianist. So, <laughs> so yes, quite, quite a, a varied um, background. However, <clears throat> I ended up... Um, somewhere along the way, um, working for a consultancy here in Sydney um, called Energetics. And they're a carbon um, climate engineering consultancy. And um, whilst working with them, I came to understand that we, 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 we engaged in a number of projects with, um, at the time I was there, with PwC. And um, in that work, I came to understand that there was a fundamental breakdown in the information flows between engineers and scientists and accountants. And um, so after a period of time, I thought, okay, I'm going to go and do a PhD on this and try and work out what's going on. Um, and the area that I became really interested in was how are investors valuing climate risk? Now, I went and spoke to a number of investors to try and find out where my PhD project might land. And Quite a few of them told me, oh, we know what we're doing with this. We know how to do this. We're, we're, we're incorporating climate risk, but we can't really discuss it with you because it's proprietary information. I was like, okay, all right. So then I went on. At the time, we had a carbon price in Australia for all of two years. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, it was there. It did exist. And then it went. Um, so that became my PhD topic. But in that PhD... I sought to do something similar, which was to understand how our engineering calculations and methodologies translated into financial values. So how do they get from um, some sort of uh, engineering uh, measurement standard um, to a place where they appear on the balance sheet? And this has always been, I suppose, my area of interest. So how do you get from the science to the finance? Um, so... After the PhD, I was fortunate enough to get a position here um, as a lecturer in the discipline of accounting. Um, and lo and behold, um, things changed globally. And I can now study what I wanted to study, which is how are investors um, valuing climate risk? And how are organisations, how are the corporates going about providing the information they need so that they can do that? And um, Kate can probably tell you a lot more about that than I can. But we've had a number of interesting discussions in this space and um, it's something that we're both quite interested in. Um, so my research is in that space now. I um, interview and talk with quite a number of corporates, with um, regulators, standard setters, investors, climate scientists. Um, I'm just wondering if I left anyone out there. Um, oh, the, um, yeah, the accounting um, professional bodies, um, so the big four firms, the accounting firms as well. Um, so I have, I'm developing quite a good sense of what matters to these different stakeholders um, in this process. And it's an important process. 
Alongside, at the moment, I'm also acting as secretary to um, Technical Working Group 3 of the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative, um, which, and this particular technical group is interested in making better informed financial decisions. Okay, so it's all also about accounting, but the remit is much broader than climate change alone. Um, there was a similar initiative in Europe, which is actually now leading to changes in EU regulation. And ideally, we would like to see some changes here in Australia. The difference being, of course, that in Europe, the um, European governments were involved in that process, and that isn't the case here. So next week, we're off to Canberra. We'll see. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that's enough about me. In terms of where CSR is and how relevant is it? Okay, so... I think it's worth just providing a little bit of historical perspective first up. Financial accounting has been around now for centuries. Okay, so we've had a very, very long time to develop standards. We've had a very, very long time to understand how to go about measuring financial value, how to verify it, how to understand it, interpret, analyse it, what is best practice, and still we get it wrong. Okay. CSR, however, has been around, I don't know, a few decades? Depends how you define it. Okay. <laughs> yep. I, 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 I would agree with that. Okay. But anyway, it's, it's a comparably shorter time. Okay. So, um, so just keeping that in mind, um, then if I put my consultant's hat on, so there were times when, I, when CSR work was farmed out to me, okay, because it was not considered to be important um, it was, you know, offloaded. Um, and I know of quite a few um, former colleagues of mine who now work within corporates who really have the sense that, and this is not all of them, okay, but some of them, um, that their target is to try and beat uh, or, you know, up their ranking on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index because in doing so, they're justifying their jobs, okay? So CSR disclosure becomes a means to an end, as opposed to something that has inherent value in and of itself. So there are problems there. And I can go into, I, I, um, from the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative, which we call ASFI, um, I, I've um, made a few notes of some of the discussions uh, we've had on the technical working group around some of the shortcomings um, on CSR disclosures, and I'll, I can go into them later. Um, so there are considerable shortcomings. However, I do think in one form or another, whether it's integrated reporting, whether it's something we don't know the look of yet that might be, say, around... that represents something like the EU taxonomy that, that considers things, say, in terms of donut economics. So I'm throwing out lots of terms there um, that some of you may be familiar with, some of you not. Happy to explain them later. A really transformational way in which we look at disclosure so that it is fully integrated within internal business models and strategies and so that it is also fully integrated with external expectations around what drives the economy in a sustainable way. Okay, so this term sustainable is one that I find deeply problematic because it is, you know, it's just uses this fluffy stuff off to the side, yeah? It's this left-wing stuff. But actually, we're talking about sustainable business. We're talking about a sustainable planet. Okay, so this is not fluffy. Okay, this is stuff that matters, and it's stuff that's hard, and it's not easy to do. 
and that's actually something that we need to tackle. So in terms of CSR disclosures, where we're going to, I actually think its time hasn't come yet, but we're on the way there and there's a lot of hard work that has to be done. That's great. Okay, so um, in, in coining this title for tonight's conversation, The Failure of Corporate Social Responsibility in a Warming World, I guess part of my role to facilitate is to play devil's advocate. And I thought I'd take a step back and ask you guys, um, do you think corporations do or should have a broader social responsibility? I mean, this is a debate that goes right back to Adam Smith, this debate about do corporations just have a responsibility to maximise value for their shareholders, the sort of Milton Friedman line from 1970, or do they have this broader responsibility to a range of stakeholders? And in fact, there was an article in the Conversations UK edition, I think just this week, reviewing this exact issue. Uh, and it's a question that no doubt you pose in your classes, I know I do in my sustainability classes. Um, but what is your view? Um, do corporations have this broader social responsibility? If they do, is that necessarily a good thing? Do we want companies like Facebook and Volkswagen and Exxon as the sort of custodians of solving these grand challenges like climate change, for instance? Throw it open to you guys. Right, I was saying, Rachel, actually, you should talk, talk about this thing that you mentioned there because <laughs> I was going to talk about that but it's, um, in response to the question. Um, should they be? Um, should it be left up to corporations? Like, should, be, should we be kind of leaving it to companies or expecting companies to sort of deliver us into a world that can actually respond to climate change? Um, I, ju I don't think so, no. I think, I think anyone who's... Um, spent time uh, looking at adaptation in particular um, and, and the sort of challenges that that involves. Um, and my, my knowledge of adaptation in, in the sort of like nitty gritty technical level is really in Australia where we've got, you know, pretty relatively good systems of governance and, you know, extremely wealthy country obviously and it is still such a nightmare in terms of... Um, uh, yeah, just equity, governance, like this. So it's it's just a mess. It's like it takes all of the problems that we have with our current sort of society and just like multiplies them and makes them, um, you know, makes them makes them harder um, to to address. Uh, so that alone, you know, I don't. I guess I don't see how companies, as they currently exist and they currently function, and the constraints and expectations that they operate under, I I just I I can't see a way to them being capable of doing that, although um, something I've been thinking about quite a lot lately for, for um, a project I've been working on is, um, you know, so, so what, you know, what would it take? Um, and I do think that it is, um, hmm, I think, I, yeah, so sort of have two, two thoughts on that. One is um, that this, the notion of shareholder values now being talked about as a little bit, you know, like there's a there's a kind of a signalling that we might be moving away from that, but I don't really think that's happening. Um, and shareholder values, this... Um, I don't know if everyone's familiar with it, and I'm not even sure if I can sort of articulate it very clearly, but I think maybe Rachel can. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it's very much, yeah, max maximising financial returns to shareholders, and it tends to kind of go hand-in-hand hand with very sort of short-term short, short -term time horizons around that as well. Um, and I, I just don't... You know, I, do, I don't really see us moving away from that um, that sort of that value um, or that dri that as the as the dominant um, set of incentives that that drive the way that businesses um, operate. Um, or, um, unless you know, I, I do think actually that 
some of this sort of some of the sort of technical underpinnings like accounting identities, um, sort of concepts of you know risk return um, expectations, um, and some of these really sort of fundamental things. I think it, I think what it would take to to kind of change that would 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 involve you know really overturning um, re really kind of radically transforming a lot of those um, uh, a lot of those sort of frameworks and values and um, um, and sort of definitions that that really um, drive everything we do um, I think the the EU green taxonomy is a something that Tanya mentioned before and um, it's a really interesting example of, of the limitations of companies I think because on the one hand it's this you know it's been this really great legislative it's been driven it was it was really driven by government um, they set up a sort of multi-sectoral expert group with um, uh, industry civil society some research not that many research people actually no and no scientists um, which I thought was a shame um, but you know they kind of tried to make it kind of multi-sectoral stakeholder thing and they, they came up with some really good recommendations um, and then somewhere in the process of that going from being a set of recommendations to um, being the uh, being the agreed legislation um, a really critical part of the taxonomy which which in itself was a really important underpinning for defining which investments are you know which investments are green and which are not green or, or gray um, that that really important um, proposed architecture was uh, lobbied against, uh, there, there was some pretty kind of intense lobbying that went on and they removed the, the grey or what people sometimes call brown part of that taxonomy and, it was, and it's just a green taxonomy. Um, and if you have something that's just sort of labelling the good stuff and is not really very clear and, and, and it's, you know, it's not mandatory or it's only kind of got limited mandatory um, range, then um, it's not clear to me how, how, you know, how good it can be. Um, so, yeah, that's my... Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I, I would say I agree um, with what's just been said, but I'll, I'll try and take a, a bit of a different take on this. Um, I think it's good to acknowledge the broader environment that we're operating in at the moment. So I brought three pages of statistics with me, so I clearly like data. Um, so one of those statistics um, that I find really amazing is um, charitable giving peaked in Australia in 1985 and it's been declining now for over 30 years. Um, so the amount that Australians give to charities is at an all-time low. Um, at the same time, the number of Australians that invest on the stock exchange is at an all-time high. So 37% of Australian adults um, invest on the stock exchange. The percentage of Australians aged 18 to 24 that invest doubled in the last 12 months. So we've got this interesting environment where we don't want to give to charities like we used to. And that's I think that's a whole separate discussion of why that is and what the implications of that are for the charitable sector. Um, and yet we're much more interested in investing in businesses despite the fact that faith in businesses is at an all-time low. So just 48% of millennials believe that businesses can act ethically. So that's less than one in two millennials think that businesses know how to act ethically and yet the number of them that are investing in businesses is going up every single year. So I think we've got this interesting environment whereby, uh, I, I agree, historically solving social challenges 
like climate change was never within the remit of business. Business exists to make a profit. And solving social challenges was within the remit of government and to a lesser extent, the social sector and charities. However, now that's not happening like it used to. Um, there's very few environmental charities in Australia and I don't think charities ever had the means to solve climate change. Does anyone? That's, you know, that's the question. Um, and at the same time, we've got a government that has consistently created a very unclear enabling environment for businesses. So the signals are, are all over the place when you compare um, to other countries where, where the signals being given to businesses is quite clear. So I, I guess in answer to your question, what that means is, yes, historically businesses weren't placed to solve a challenge like this, but who else can um, if it's not the charitable sector and if it's not our government? Um, and, and that's where the, the notion of, of shareholder value and the interest of shareholders becomes really significant. In, in 2018, we had more hostile AGMs than we've ever had. Um, and a hostile AGM is basically um, where a, a, an annual general meeting is an AGM um, and it's where a shareholder or a non-shareholder comes to the meeting and puts something forward that wasn't on the agenda and typically it's the environment. So it's where they're coming to the meeting and they're going, what are you doing about environmental and social um, governance? We have more of those hostile AGMs last year than ever before. So shareholders are speaking up. Let's not overstate how much they're speaking up. Um, but <laughs> increasingly shareholders are um, holding businesses to account and, and businesses have to listen to that. So I would say in short, the capacity of businesses to play a really meaningful role um, is increasing. Um, but to echo Kate's point, still a long way to go. Thank you. Um, look, my observation also is that company, companies, some companies, are beginning to get this. Um, but whether they, the entire company is beginning to get this um, and the extent to which they're beginning to get this um, is, is another matter. I do think they do have a role to play. Um, because of that. And one of the reasons I think that is because of a recent... Well, there, were two, there are two things that have happened over the last few, few years which um, uh, I know Kate was involved with one of them. Um, so, well, actually both of them, I think. So <laughs> one, one, one was the Hutley opinion. Um, you weren't involved in that one, okay. Um, yeah, no. Um, yeah, so, so one was the Hutley opinion, um, so that's a legal opinion on um, the director's duties um, with respect to, um, so in that opinion, um, if, if a director has not, is not shown to have taken climate change into consideration, that um, in the opinion they stated that according to um, Australian corporate law, they could be held to be negligent. Um, because climate, is, climate change is foreseeable now and it is also actionable. Okay, so I think that opinion was quite fundamental in causing a lot of alarm bells to start ringing. So people began, corporates began, the educated ones at least, to understand that this sustainability fluff in the corner, um, actually it might matter. So it might actually have a financial impact in terms of reputational risk, um, in terms of litigation, 
Um, and, you know, our shareholders might begin to move against us. So, so that's one, one piece. And, um, yeah, so I think there are people who would say it's just a matter of time. Um, for some of that litigation to take place. And it's, it's beginning to occur in other countries. Um, the second is um, guidance that was published last, at the end of last year by the um, a joint um, guidance by the Australian Accounting Standards Board and the Australian Auditing and Assurance Standards Board, um, which related to a practice statement that they'd previously published on materiality. Okay, so materiality is a consideration of, well... If something is material, then we need to disclose it, okay? And materiality, one of the ways in which it can be determined is the context, the environment in which you are operating, okay? And so for some companies, if you take, for example, a thermal coal producer, um, if we said, for example, that on their board they had climate change deniers, um, then the argument that's made in this guidance is it doesn't actually matter what you think about climate change. It doesn't matter in the slightest. Because if your investors, if your environment believes that climate change is an issue, then that is material, which means you need to begin disclosing your risk around climate change, your financial exposure. Now, in the case of coal miners, that financial expo exposure relates to transition risk. Okay, because you have to transition from to a, a low-carbon economy. So anyway, I'll stop talking. Um, but I think those two, those two moments in sort of the recent history in this discussion have been quite pivotal, and they show that just slight tweaks of what we already have in the way of legislation and standards or extra clarification can actually do a lot um, in making corporates stand up. And some corporates are beginning to act in quite considerable ways. Um, but again, it's really only the very educated ones. Great, thanks. So on the back of that, I guess, it's sounding like many people believe corporations should have a broader responsibility beyond just maximising shareholder value, but that we don't actually expect them to do that and that um, we're expecting them to behave probably in fairly unethical ways to maximise shareholder value and that might have bad social outcomes. But I wanted to spin the question in a different way um, because it's sort of assuming that corporations and corporate social responsibility practices are aimed at solving, responding to various grand challenges, poverty eradication, slavery in the supply chain, climate crisis, whatever it is. But it, an argument could be made, and it's an argument that colleagues and I have probably made in the past, that one way of interpreting CSR is a sort of a discursive response to the critique that it's get, the company's getting from other parties. So they're getting hit with regulatory risk or reputational risk. You know, they're BP, they've had a big oil spill in the Gulf. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, you pump up your corporate social responsibility, you pump up your green marketing, we're an oil company, but we're trying to transition to be an energy company. So you could say perhaps maybe rather than the failure of CSR, maybe it's the success of CSR in a warming world, particularly if you're a fossil fuel corporation that CSR has been a success and that you've been able to continue doing what you've always done. Business as usual continues. You kick the can down the road. Predatory delay continues. What, what are your feelings on that perhaps controversial proposition? <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll be quick on this one because I've just jumped in. Um, so, yes, I would agree with that. 
um, in a way, it's the success of CSR. But, again, this goes to one of the, I suppose, shortcomings, um, is that is this lack of integration with a broader strategic and financial narrative, okay? And what I mean by that is that disclosure becomes a function of risk instead of opportunity, okay? So instead, it can be about the opportunities. And if, you, if we start thinking about things in terms of the opportunities, um, there, there's a, a friend of mine um, has recently started working for a mining company in Canada um, called Trevally. Um, and they have as their, um, I suppose, their mission statement to be the most sustainable mining company on earth, okay? So they're looking to completely transform um, the way they do mining, okay? Um, and I won't speak too much about it because I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, um, but uh, I think there are some businesses that are beginning to really get what needs to be done. And so if you think in terms of, say, regenerative economies um, and agriculture, if you think in terms of our indigenous communities and the way in which they used to run their economies, if you think in terms of, uh, I mentioned donut economics before again, there's tremendous opportunity to be found by the creative companies that look to doing business differently not business as usual. So I think if we reframe that as around from a disclosure as a risk to one around disclosure as an opportunity and integrating it with the broader strategic and financial narrative, then we have a different proposition. Mm. Yeah, I'll keep this brief as well because I think you're probably better placed to speak on this. Um, I, I think the risk versus opportunity argument is a really interesting one so I would agree with you Chris I think the danger of CSR is that um, it's fundamentally reactive as opposed to proactive um, is a company ever going to implement the sorts of environmental and social responses that they might proactively or is it always going to be in response to either shareholder or criticism from the general public um, so I think the reactivity of it is a fundamental flaw I would also say I think the term CSR doesn't serve us very well. I think the concept of CSR is, I mean, it's hard to disagree that corporates should have some degree of social responsibility. Um, conceptually, it makes sense. The term CSR, though, I, I agree is fundamentally, it feels like a public relations tool to me, as opposed to being something that actually tackles core business. Um, the third point I would make quickly before I hand over is I think there's a, a danger um, in this constant win-win lens. I think, <laughs> I think businesses are always um, – we, we've started peddling this argument a lot that somehow you can view climate change as an opportunity and you can come out on top with the environment and you can make more money. Um, and so many companies are saying we're diversifying away from these bad things and we're going to make more profits by 2030 and we're going to have, you know, really like hit our carbon neutral targets or whatever. There's a real danger in making everything a win-win and I think we need to accept that there are entire industries that need to go out of business <laughs> in order to, to respond to this. Like, I don't think we're ever going to make BHP a win-win out of climate change. I don't think it can happen. Um, 
And so I think this is a way in which we have this conversation is let's not always try and find the silver lining of everything. Let's accept that businesses will go out of business eventually and they need to as a result of climate change. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I, I've got to agree with that, I think. Sorry, Tanya. <laughs> but not talking about every business. Yeah, no, good point. Okay. I, I guess I think of... Uh, yeah, just on opportunity, I, I think, I guess, th I just think opportunity is just the other, like from a sort of financial perspective, opportunity and risk are just, they're just two sides of the same thing, basically, like someone's opportunity is someone else's risk, someone, it, it's, you know, not, not to be really sort of mercantilist and like zero sum about it, but it kind of does work like that to an extent, you know, like, so, like, yeah, and yeah, some of these entire sectors are going to have to be wound down. Um, pretty quickly and it's not really clear how that's going to happen um, in some cases although you know there are some interesting examples like in Germany where they're um, you know where it's actually you know the government's doing it um, of course but um, yeah where, where, where there is some thinking going on about it um, doesn't seem to be happening that sort of you know um, uh, I can't think of the term right now, um, but the but the you know, no, yeah, not just right, no the other <laughs> the other one where your company stops functioning, where you wind down your company essentially. Um, uh, I can't remember measured thing, um, uh, but yeah, where you basically kind of uh, move away from you know you're an oil company, you can't keep doing that forever. So um, how how do you kind of just wind that down? Is it even possible for an oil company to transition into being an energy company that's just about, you know, renewable um, electricity and storage? Um, I, I don't know, you know, kind of Shell and maybe any in Total are like a little bit, we're showing signs that, you know, are the, one, the ones that have shown the most enthusiasm for that and they're still so far away from being, you know, really you know, anything like sort of substantially committed enough to transitioning away from, um, you know, mostly sort of fossil fuel and e extractive focused business. If you actually look at the kind of, you know, percentage points of um, capital expenditure on, um, on, on clean energy, it's still really meagre and, um, you know, Shell CEO just the other day was saying we can't, you know, we just have no choice. We have to keep producing oil and gas and, you know, we're being demonised for it. And um, interestingly... Bob Dudley from BP used exactly the same language last week. Uh, <laughs> they're all, all being demonised by, you know, us uh, feckless people who don't understand how important oil and gas are, apparently. Um, which, which actually I do understand how important they are to how the world works currently because um, I did come to climate sort of from an energy perspective and I know it's, you know, it's not, I, I, I'm not sure if there are that many people who are sort of unaware of like the, s the scale of the of the task at hand. Um, so, uh, point? I can't remember where I was going to go with that. Um, yeah. So the yeah. So the opportunity in risking, I think, is I don't know. I mean, Chris, Chris, you said before in this kind of prompt, you know, what you were talking about, like what we expect of companies. Do we expect them to kind of be the be the sort of instigators or leaders or, 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 or you know, to be sort of driving or or at least facilitating and enabling the things that have to happen? Um, I just think it doesn't matter what we expect of companies. It matters what we make them do. They have to be... It's legislation. Um, there's always going to be some money on the table for keeping on going with the legacy business. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's always going to be, like, institutional inertia, um, sort of, you know, social conservatism. Um, to overturn those things... Uh, 
um, in the time that we have is just it's not it's it's not it, you know the 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 sort of the the incentives just don't align they just don't um, I, I don't believe that they do um, I think the um, I've, I've been spending a lot of time lately with the 1.5 special report that the IPCC um, put out a year ago and the majority of it is talking about the um, again this sort of word the systems transitions that are required to pursue not to reach 1.5 because we're not really sure if that's possible anymore but to even have a chance of pursuing it um, the, the, you know, not just the sort of speed and range of measures that have to happen, but the trade-offs between them. Um, so things like, you know, land use, um, it's really big, you know, what land gets used for um, mitigation um, versus, you know, by like, it, like it's it's very difficult stuff. The, the kind of the geopolitical and kind of international, um, uh, you know, equity dimensions are very hard. Um, it's... You know, it, it, we need. I, I guess you know, if you if you're talking about corporations as being entities that can all sort of act independently um, with the sort of some unifying incentives, but that they all are you know very free. If we're talking about like a free market kind of idea of corporation, it's very hard to see how the level of you know th there is really a level of coordination and 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 sort of really decision-making um, that, that needs to happen um, and I, I, I don't know how that's mm. going to, you know, even if you do have some good, some companies that are doing, you know, are being really, uh, you know, taking really big risks and, and, and really sticking their neck out, um, I don't know if you'll get enough That's quite a good segue to my, my last question, I guess, before we open up for Q&A because it strikes me that, and we all know this, I mean, the science is pretty clear, We're, we are in a climate emergency, we are heading to four degrees C on current trajectory. We're going to miss 1.5, we'll probably miss two. Um, so we are in a full-blown crisis. And, you know, people like Ian Dunlop and others talk about the, the urgency of the, the, the rate of decarbonisation that we require. So we live in this sort of neoliberal global economy where we see business as the answer for pretty well everything and market forces as the answer for pretty well everything. And it's come up a bit in the comments you've made, but it, the actor that's really missing here is government. I mean... This is how we respond to these existential crises traditionally, and yet we've had 40 years of economic policy where government has been sidelined, and now the political parties um, are supporters of that view that they shouldn't govern, they shouldn't have policies, they shouldn't plan, they shouldn't regulate. Uh, so I guess my, my last sort of question, provocation to you guys is, we talked a little bit about sending better signals to business, but isn't the answer really that we actually need to regulate carbon emissions, probably in a fairly mandatory and almost command and control sort of approach. Um, I know that seems fanciful, but what, what are your views on that, you know, given how late in the day it really is? Oh, this is a third rail. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, d oh God, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I've, I've never really liked being very sort of prescriptive. Um, and certainly, you know, most of the work that I you know, the first few years that I spent working in this sort of climate finance intersection, um, I was very much, I'm just looking at this through a finance lens. Um, I'm not looking at, you know, there's a, there's a whole kind of scene of like non-financial reporting, um, uh, natural capital, integrated reporting, things like that, where you're looking at non-financial um, outputs and inputs. But I was always looking at climate as a financial factor, you know, as something that actually manifests financially, it has, materi has financial materiality. Um, and, you know, that was kind of, I think that was, you know, 
a necessary thing and it still is a ne necessary thing but um and it also conveniently meant that I did not have to um be very political or even sort of venture into anything that might sound political and thus kind of put off um you know the important sort of decision makers that I was you know working with and and hoping to kind of uh, motivate to actually take climate change more seriously. Um, it's I, th I think it's sort of getting harder and harder to sort of maintain that. Oh, you know, we'll just you know we can be really neutral and you know not not really um, talk about the role of government and talk about um, the role of, of of policy and the sort of redistributive and the sort of planning role of government and the coordinating role of government um, and governments. And this is different levels and this is also global. You know, there's 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 going to have to be some global level of coordination if we want to, if we're going to get through this without, you know, just horrendous, um, you know, horrendous sort of devastation to, to, to large parts of the, of the population of the world. Um, so, yeah, it's a hard one. <laughs> but It is hard. Um, I emailed Chris this morning and said, um, we need to talk about how the signals from government are really unclear. And then I went through my day and I was like, they're actually very clear. Mm. Like, <laughs> um, and, I, and I made a list of all the ways in which they're clear and, and I got to like 20 different things. Like it's, it's actually very clear that the government is not going to hold um, the private sector to account for climate and is, is actually doing the opposite. So, um, you know, with things like the massive subsidies and tax arrangements for coal, oil and gas, penalising states who try to reduce their own emissions, watering down our international commitments, the signal is clear. Um, so on that note, um, you know, I, I think if the signal is clear, then waiting for tighter regulation from government is even more unlikely. It's not, it's not something we're going to have in the short term, which begs the question, who does that instead? Um, and for that, I don't have an answer. Yeah, look, <clears throat> I, I, I do think we need government. We all do in this room, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, the signals from government are important because it helps those companies that actually want to do good. It supports them in that process. Signal from government is important because it helps, as, as Kate was mentioning with regards to Germany, for example, my understanding is that well, I don't know if it's actually true, but it's reported that not a single coal miner has lost a job um, as a consequence of the transition out of coal. So uh, it is, they're trying to do what's called a just transition. That won't happen in Australia. So th the government is, you know, it's not, they, they, they tell us that they're trying to protect our jobs, but actually I think we'd probably all agree that they're not. They're not protecting our jobs. Um, they're not protecting our opportunities. Um, so government is important and it can play a really instrumental role in this transition if we're going to transition in a way that is rapid but, you know, on a curve as opposed to a shock. And so I'm assuming that where we're headed is a shock. Um, and I, well, there will be numerous climate shocks that we will experience um, in terms of acute weather events, um, uh, but we will also experience financial shocks, and um, I'm, I'm assuming that that's where we're going, um, and that, in effect, will replace regulation. 
Well, on that happy note, um, <laughs> I think we might open it up for Q&A. Yes. Um, so we have uh, sort of 25 minutes or so for Q&A. So if you have a question, if you could raise your hand and a mic will come to you. And if you could make it a question, that'd be great um, rather than just a long comment. Yeah, okay. Uh, should we start on this side? Yep. Perhaps identify yourself too if you want to. Uh, good evening. My name's David. Uh, thank you for all your contributions. Uh, just a very first, a quick question to start with. Um, one of you said that uh, CSR as a concept is a good idea, but the term is no good because it smacks of a PR exercise. Uh, in light of that, what is a good term? Um, great question. Um, what is a good term? I mean, perhaps there isn't a good term. Like, perhaps the fact that we're trying to limit it to a single term is the problem. Um, I, I made this point the other day that no one really asks a business what their profit strategy is, but everyone asks them what their sustainability strategy is um, because we're not sure if they have one or not, whereas it would be unheard of to not have a profit strategy. Of course, they know how they make profits. And so I, th I, th I, think, I think that's the point that we shouldn't really need a term we shouldn't need to say, do you have a CSR strategy or do you have a sustainability strategy because it should be so inherent to business um, that it shouldn't be limited to the semantics. Um, it, so I would say perhaps we don't need a term. Do you have any thoughts? No. no. <laughs> I think the problem simply lies in the way in which we've been using the term sustainability. I think we've been using it in a way, we've been abusing it. And um, I think the term in itself um, is, is harmless <laughs> and has enormous potential, um, but not in the way that we've been using it. My name is Joe. If I heard correctly, there was a, there was a, uh, <coughs> a Hurley decision. When and where did that happen? This is to make CEOs accountable. When and where did that happen? Was that Australian? Um, it was, uh, was 20, yeah, it was 2016. It's a legal opinion, so it's not a decision to do it. It's, a, I guess, a, yeah, a sort of an expert opinion that, um, that liability exists for company directors um, who, uh, who, who, you know, if the company incurs losses relating to climate change in some way, whether that's the impacts of climate change or the effects of... Um, uh, efforts to mitigate climate change. Um, if the company suffers financial loss, then the directors could be liable for failing to have foreseen it because it's foreseeable and I'm not a legal expert, but that to me was one of the key kind of um, uh, elements of, of the legal opinion. Um, you could argue that there's been, I mean, there's, a, there's, you know, there's people who are experts and there's some here at this university or there's a woman called Sarah Barker who's like the expert on this um, and, you know, she points out that there are um, some examples of uh, sort of class action, shareholder class actions in the US against um, Exxon. There's one against Exxon over where they had to restate their reserves. You could argue that these are, or that we've already seen examples of this type of litigation um, taking place. So, yeah, but, you know, it's like how does it, it – it's got to manifest in a – I guess, you know, at some point you reach a tipping point where everyone actually takes it seriously. And that, that tipping point is where you can have that shock. Yeah, 
Hi, um, my name's Marina. Thank you all for a great panel. Um, I have a cheeky question about, um, given the complexity of climate change, um, how could CSR succeed in answering the challenges? And perhaps do you have any good examples of companies that are doing it semi-well? Um, my personal opinion is there's a great Venn diagram that the uh, United Nations Framework for Convention on Climate Change produced where the Sustainable Development Goals and the, um, the need for climate adaptation for some reason that didn't include mitigation, um, and the Sendai framework, which is on disaster um, response and resilience, oh, d disaster response, and then in the middle there's resilience. Um, so it maps all these things together, and I think it, it's, it's, that diagram for me is great because it's where I can begin to visualise how all this stuff might be. But you won't have... You won't be able to do anything about poverty if you don't fix climate change. You won't, have, you won't have improvements in gender equity if you don't fix climate change. Um, you, know, you won't have improvements in biodiversity loss if you don't fix climate change. Ocean acidification, climate change, yeah, everything. All of those sustainable development goals, all of those other aspects of sustainability that appear in corporate sustainability reports, we can't address them if we don't address climate change. So my personal opinion it, it is it has to be the overriding priority. We have to put everything into it. If, if I could just jump in, I don't think any company can solve climate change. Um, it's a systemic problem. So you'll get little islands of companies that are trying to do reduce their carbon emissions, their carbon footprint, they're doing eco-efficiency, they change their car fleet, they're doing all the you know, culture change stuff. There's a whole range of sort of environmental management practices a lot of companies do but these are isolated sort of practices often limited to a particular business division that don't have much longevity anyway because of the short-term sort of time frames most corporations have so trying to solve climate change from a company level is, is, is a um, it's a it's a sort of fanciful proposition in a way because of the systemic nature of it what you could hope to have is entire industry sectors driving change across economies you know, potentially reinsurance, putting pressure on the insurance sector, driving financial investment decisions, then you can have some real leverage, but it's ultimately a collective action problem. Something I'd just add very quickly, because I can see there's a lot more questions, so I'll keep this really brief. Um, I think the other way that CSR can succeed, and probably the greatest hope of corporations becoming more responsible, is with this next generation of shareholders. Um, so we can see globally there's a massive transfer of wealth occurring and wealth is increasingly going into the hands of millennials and increasingly women. Um, and we know that millennials and also women, very generally speaking, have a much uh, higher um, expectation around environmental and social um, responsibility of corporations. So I think generationally in the next decade or, or more, um, as wealth is increasingly concentrated in the hands of this emerging group, um, I think that'll play a really powerful role in holding businesses to account. Yeah, I think we're down the back. Uh, yes. Yes, so um, can I just mention one other thing that I really wanted to say earlier? I kept writing myself notes, but just in answer to that question is that actually like lobbying is so important and we haven't talked about lobbying at all and it's you know companies supporting trade lobbying um, is uh, you know and the, the, that's really where 
CSR could can actually perform a really useful function in, you know, getting companies out of trade groups that are being bad actors, um, stopping good policy, stopping progress um, on climate policy. Um, it's not that hard, you know, it's not a financial loss, your shareholders really aren't going to punish you over it. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's something that I think is often like within the, um, uh, within the power or potentially within the power of, of CSR um, or CR as it's sort of structured is to kind of try and sort of make, make those things happen. And, that, and, you know, that's stuff that really matters. That's where, that's where you get to the influence um, that, that really affects um, policy, that affects the system. Okay, we're down the back. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, actually the point just made about lobbying leads uh, ties in with my uh, question. Uh, so in that uh, realm of um, uh, civil society kind of uh, actions and so on, another one which was uh, looked at was uh, shareholder uh, actions. Um, but sort of uh, relating to our lobbying, uh, things like uh, consumer boycotts and uh, sometimes more direct things like that as well as uh, lobbying and so on, uh, to what extent can you give, uh, would you like to give some examples of uh, where that might have been uh, successful and um, what sort of uh, strategies with um, consumer boycotts and so on have worked and which ones haven't worked so well? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. Um, actually, uh, <laughs> was posed the question a few days ago, is ethical consumerism the new charitable giving? And I think that's a really cool question because I think the way that we try to interact with social issues nowadays um, is much less through charitable giving and it's much more through the products that we consume and the businesses that we support. Um, I actually... I can't think of any examples off the top of my head where that has been successful. Um, I'm sure there are really successful boycotts of consumer products, and maybe, maybe you can think of I some. I was just not necessarily a boycott. I'm thinking Greenpeace's campaign against Nestle over palm oil was quite a successful um, example. That um, it was basically a viral social media campaign targeting Nestle over the impact on orangutans and rainforests in, in Indonesia, and it seemed to have quite a powerful impact on Nestle and shifting towards supposedly sustainable palm oil, whatever that is. So. Yeah. Okay. Another question down the back there. Um, so you spoke at the beginning about how you saw that there was a lack of correlation between uh, what scientists were saying, or a lack of communication between scientists and between like accountants and corporations in your work. And I was just wondering if you think the timeline that scientists have given us to respond to climate change can be matched by a CSR response? Sorry, I didn't quite get the end of your question. So if you think that the timeline, oh, that the timeline scientists have given us to respond to climate change could be matched by any kind of response by CSR? I think it could be. <laughs> Will be? <laughs> but it isn't. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of obfuscation that's taking place. And that, again, speaks to the need for um, standards and regulation to remove that. Okay. Um, another question? Um, so just had a very quick question. Uh, there's a good theory in management, which is that what gets measured gets managed. Um, and we're sort of talking about financial statements. So, you know, if you had a, 
um, you know, a miracle occurred and you, and you could force companies to report on something in their financial statements, like, like a re an, an actual measure of um, sustainability or their impact on warming or whatever the right thing would be, what would, what, what would actually be that measure? I've got two answers which aren't going to answer your question. <laughs> so the first is the discussion that's currently being held is, um, and a part of that I suppose does, does answer that question. So if you're thinking in terms of transition risk, transition risk is largely tied to your emissions. So, um, well, for some businesses. Um, so again, if we go to the example of a thermal coal producer, um, some of their transition risk, well, a large part of it, is around their emissions. Um, and then um, we can start speaking about things like contingent liabilities. In terms of... And there are... I know there are people who believe that we're very close to this happening. Um, I don't know if we will actually see it happen. I think, I think people are beginning to create those numbers internally and that that's leading to strategic changes internally. Um, but not necessarily for the businesses that we really want that to happen with. Okay, the second answer that I was going to give was, and I keep coming back to donut um, economics. <laughs> um, I think ideally we want to see a complete transformation of what we call accounting. Um, where we're no longer accounting for what we do, but what we're accounting for is what we do against a cap. Okay, so it, we're talking proportions as opposed to absolutes. So instead of I emit X amount or um, I consume Y amount, it is I'm consuming X amount of this budget. And that's the global budget of global budget on sorry emissions, or it is my local budget in terms of the water catchment in this area. I'm consuming X amount of that. That's where I think we need to be going. However, <laughs> you I know I think I think, but though you know, I've had a lot of conversations with companies about this sort of budget idea, and it's. Um, you know, like the carbon budget is this, you know, incredibly useful um, concept that, that, you know, emerged in the, in the research literature. But um, it's uh, when companies start, well, okay, I, I guess sort of firstly I'm a bit sceptical of the what, me what, gets <laughs> what gets measured gets managed as a, um, as a kind of effective um, theory of change, as, as we would call it in the world of advocacy. Um, I think it was a pretty good theory of change maybe 10 years ago, but um, not really now. Um, it's too, There's a lot of measurement work going on. Um, I think, I know Tanya, you're more talking about like the, the, those sort of, you know, the underlying sort of definitions and, 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 and ex, uh, you know, you, you, you're talking sort of more fundamentally than just sort of generally sort of quanti quantifying things. But um, I still worry that so much energy has gone into measurement and um, and different, you know, and yeah, you know, you guys know about this, yeah, <laughs> all, the, all the methodologies and, you know, it's partly because that none of them, very until very recently, none of them were legislated, they were all very much, you know, uh, it's all very sort of laissez-faire and, um, and, and, you know, um, voluntary uh, methodologies. Um, 
that it doesn't it doesn't really amount to very much except you know your your rankings um your cdp score or your rankings on the um djsi or or whatever else um sort of scorecard or or green tick type thing you can you can get um uh yeah sorry on the budget thing i think it's it's particularly difficult because you know companies will say and you know i had we had this conversation with agl when um when i was at the climate institute and they um produced um under different leadership to what they have now um uh they produced a really interesting um scenario analysis i can't remember what's called their low carbon transition i think um, t um tim nelson and, and some other people there led it and um it was really not you know it was really nice they really sort of stepped through a lot of the stuff um that that you should that one should step through in, in looking at you know your long-term obligations and your long-term sort of pathway out to, to zero emissions by middle of the century um but they allocated um energy this is sounds slightly boring and arcane but really important was that they assumed that energy did the same amount of decarbonisation as the rest of the economy in the in the sort of up till 2030 window when actually you know arguably energy needs to do quite a bit more because it's the one that we can do most easily now so it has to do it's not really a it's not not an aggregate thing but it, it is a time-based thing where you know energy just has to do more because it's it's the it's the um the easier one and they um you know and they kind of you know somewhat reasonably were like but there's no way of defining that so how you know anyway sorry. <laughs> um but yes there's so much measurement and maybe actually what we just need is a really simple rule of thumb um there's something called uh, i'm going to forget the name of it now um but there's a, a new ish sort of initiative um that's about um reduce it you know it's like we basically we need to have emissions in about 10 years now and then we need to have them again over the next 10 years um you know really that like can you like something it's a bit more simple a bit more high level but um is a bit more like recognizing the actual scale of the uh, and you know the sort of really radical nature of what needs to um to happen um yeah, I, I really wish uh, we might take exponen a exponential roadmap. That's what it's called. We might anyway, take yes, another question. As time is getting short, so I think the man there. Hi, um, thanks very much for the talks. First, they've been fantastic. My question, though, is: Is there any profit in ethics for companies? Because we seem to we, no one's spoken about ethics tonight, and business used to seem to have a more ethical framework. The role of capitalism had ethical bounds, etc., to it. But if you look at America at the moment, it's the, what the What's happening with Trump seems to be this, without going into the details, but there's this profound loss of ethical responsibility going on, and it seems to me this is being paralleled as well in our approach to what's happening in the chaos of climate change. Mm. I thought we lost the ethics in the 1980s, but there we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's interesting. I suppose it depends where you look, because I think, I think in recent months there's actually been a lot of steps in the US to make capitalism more ethical. Um, I think there's been a a really strong reaction from the business community in the US to Trump with things like the recent US business roundtables, um, which were a very strong commitment from business leaders to do uh, environmental and social governance better. Um, if anyone hasn't seen the outcomes paper from the US business roundtables, I'd really encourage you to have a look at it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I would <laughs> I would say as we've said, you know, throughout this discussion, it's different segments of the market. I think there's segments of the market that are really heading towards looking at how to align profits with purpose, and there's others that they just aren't. Like I don't think there's a one size fits all response, but I think there is some really encouraging signs in the U.S. Um, recently, in particular, the U.S. business roundtables. Okay, another question. Yeah. Yes, down the back there. 
Hi, um, I work in film and TV, and my question is about what we call uh, branded content. Um, I mean, given that we're discussing this in a uni lecture hall, I think that's one thing, but when you go on the street, there's a lot of uh, misinformation and misunderstanding still out there. Um, and I think the content that we watch in terms of entertainment can play a big part in uh, addressing this crisis. My question is then, is there much space or appetite um, in companies' CSR budgets um, for this kind of thing? Is it already happening on climate specifically? And um, are there maybe specific companies that um, are interested in this kind of thing? That's a hard question, but I got a really weird thing in my LinkedIn yes inbox yesterday, which I almost have to read out now because it was so so pertinent to this, but but not in a good way. It was basically someone who sort of thought clearly thought that I you know had some different role to what I have and was proposing, you know, they're producing a documentary. Uh, some kind of eco-documentary and we're offering, you know, naming rights for the company at the end and it'll be really good branding and uh, I don't know. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know the, the fact that they were blindly trying to pitch it through LinkedIn inbox stuff suggests that maybe it's not that great, uh, not that successful a strategy, but um, I don't know. I thought you were going to ask about the media generally and sort of, um, you know, intermediation of information. I was going to say that's another thing we didn't talk about, um, I, I think, so, so far along with lobbying, which is actually really important. It's a bit nebulous <coughs> and hard to pin down, but it's actually really important. And I think um, um, there's a, uh, like, t um, campaigns and, and efforts to stop companies advertising and supporting media that is, um, you know, just recklessly spreading misinformation is, uh, I think that's another really useful lever that companies can pull, very little cost to themselves, you know, you're out, who cares about your advertising budget, no one, you're in, you're, you know, your big investors are never going to hammer you over that, it's not going to affect your share price, but it's a bit of discretionary power that you have, a bit of discretionary spend that you have that you can actually, like, where you can actually send a message that, that that matters, that you know you won't support media that is that is just um, you know willfully and 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 sort of blatantly and repeatedly misinforming people, which is you know something we have a lot of in this country. Mm. I mean, just throw in there is a rich vein of corporate um, video advertising, which is in the greenwashing camp, which you can find lots of yeah. on YouTube. Uh, Eco imagination was one, and uh, there's others. We've, we're really running short of time. We've got one question, so we might just down the back. The man with the microphone. Hello, um, my name's Jan. Um, thanks for all of your insights. It was really interesting hearing your opinions on the issue. Um, my question was for Kate, but I'd love to hear the panel's opinions on the matter. Um, Kate, I was wondering if you could speak a little more about responsibility within the banking sector. Um, you mentioned that the issue is systemic, which I agree with you, but that also papers over the overwhelming accountability that some sectors and um, specific multinationals bear for climate change. So there seems to be very clear villains in the climate narrative, and CSR seems to function largely to um, launder that responsibility and disperse blame. Um, so for instance, JP Morgan Chase, the world's largest bank, has $196 billion committed to financing fossil fuel investment, which is more than the entire market valuation of BP, whereas like Exxon, for comparison, invests less than $3 billion on exploration and R&D. So if you look at like the 100 companies that are responsible for over 70% of global emissions, nearly all of them are energy majors, but the banks are driving all of their operations forward. Um, so I just wanted to hear if you had any thoughts on how we get through that impasse. Thanks. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, look, it's a very live kind of topic at the moment, I guess, in um, the sort of climate scene generally and in civil society in particular um, around, uh, you know, that there's been, there has, we, you know, we've had quite a long time, you know, a good decade or more of focus on um, asset owners and asset and to, to a degree asset managers, um, but less... Uh, you know, and, and equities, basically, companies as issuers of equity. There's been less focus on um, debt um, and the, the sort of the role of debt as a means of financing, um, you know, polluting or, or, or um, other sort of harmful activity. Um, and now, yeah, it's, it seems that everyone's sort of gone, oh, hang on, there's another really big source of financing, which is banks, so why don't we look at them? Um, I'm not quite sure why it took so long. I was looking at banks a few years ago, um, but I guess they're a bit more opaque in a way. Maybe that was it. I mean, it is. it was quite, you know, it was hard. Um, they've got their, you know, you can't look at a bank's books. I mean, you can look through a company's books to an extent, but, um, you know, you do rely on the bank to disclose um, information about its about what it's lending and um, and the other sorts of you know services that it's providing like underwriting um, it's it's very complex you know it's not like again like you know equity and debt they're very you know nice that easy um, securitized um, things but um, bank debt is pretty kind of uh, you know well it can be securitized but in all kinds of like weird and arcane sort of ways um, so. I, d I don't know if I kind of think like banks are more important than other forms of, you know, other sources of capital. Um, you know, I think there's there's also you know there's, there's instances of pension funds sort of directly funding, um, you know, dire directly funding um, shale plays in the US recently. You know, because they've been finding it harder to finance directly through the market, so going directly to pension funds. Um, there's yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think basically. There are yeah. There's a big, there's a big, very, very big, very complex world out there of capital markets and different ways that finance can be can be accessed um, and the different terms that it that it comes on. And um, yeah, I mean, for anyone who's focusing on financing as the as a particular lever um, to it to enable um, change or to or, you know to force through change, then yeah, it completely makes sense to. To, to focus on banking and actually sorry I shouldn't say no one's been looking at it for a while there's been um there have been some initiatives going back years and years and years and um I think some of the you know there's something called bank track which um uh I didn't think their data was that great years and years ago but actually like I it's actually pretty good now like they've got some really good good stuff um now and they're, they're pretty across you know how, how that how that sector works and how it's funding fossil fuels and expansion um but would you say, Kate, that this is actually a potential area of significant risk for banks? Um, I mean, in, in, this, in, in the sense that the, the awareness around the exposure hasn't really been there. And going back to, to the point that the um, – sorry, I don't remember your name – but that you made as well, um, that resources within corporates and including banks um, dedicated to understanding these areas of risk have historically been completely underfunded and still are largely um so is it a source of risk i think yeah i mean in as much as any uh, yeah I, I mean just but I, I guess i don't see it as that different to sort of companies 
you know, pr- probably for a company like the strategy and their ex- their inability to be flexible about their strategy is probably like a bigger risk because it's harder one to shift out of. Whereas banks, in theory, you know, banks can sort of you know roll over the the debt. You know, they can theoretically they can sort of exit some of their positions easier than a, than a company which has sort of got a really like you know depending on the industry if you're like an aerospace company then you've got to be think you know you've got like a 20 year kind of timeline and if you're not f- figuring out a kind of response to an existential threat to your industry right now then you're probably going to be in trouble um and not going to have time to switch in a, you know a few years time um yeah, I mean banks. Well, yeah, it's hard. It, it is harder for them. I mean, I, I did a lot of look. I, I did a lot of work on banks and insurers. Um, and everyone says, oh, insurers, they can just reprice every year, or they can exit every year. So they, you know, they've got that flexibility. So yeah, I mean, arguably banks don't. Um, but you know, then you sort of get back to this question of like, well, who's who's got agency and how much have they got? You know, like pension funds will say, well, we have to kind of match universal benchmarks so it's very hard for us to you know do large-scale divestments or you know really kind of or, or do too even too much active management because then the you know the fees we pay are very high and there's um yeah but I, I actually know I remember what it was now it was about consumers um as the sort of reputational risk um that's something I've been thinking about recently as I think it used to be accepted wisdom that like people don't change banks they don't change super funds very easy it's very hard to get people engaged in that stuff but I uh, I just have a feeling that that might be something that's about to change and that that could be something that's more significant than it has been in the past. Yeah, yeah, and lobby. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay, so on that hopeful note, we have actually gone over time, so we need to close it off now. So uh, please join me in thanking our three speakers, Kate, Rachel and Tanya. And hopefully um, you enjoyed tonight and got something out of it. And um, with that, I will bid you good night. Good night.